The reading is taken from Luke chapter 6, beginning at verse 12, and can be found on page 1033. Luke chapter 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. When morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of them, whom he asked also designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, his brother Andrew, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He went down with them and stood on a level place. A large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judah, from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region around Tyre and Sidon, who had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. Those troubled by impure spirits were cured, and the people all tried to touch him, because power was coming from him and healing them all. Looking at his disciples, he said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hunger now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you, and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, because great is your reward in heaven, for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you have already received your comfort. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will go hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks Thanks be be to God. Chloe, very much indeed. Do keep your Bibles open there, won't you, at uh, Luke chapter 6. When Emmanuel was doing the uh, the testing of the disciples, you know, do you know the 12 names of the disciples? Uh, I I whispered to Debbie, quick, open your Bible to Luke 6, because they normally pick on the vicar, because they should know that sort of thing. And I was a bit nervous that he would, and I wouldn't remember the 12. So uh, it's always good to have your Bible open or remember uh, the 12 disciples. Uh, it's always unfair in quiz, quizzes where there's a religious section, and if you're in it, you know, they all look at the vicar and think they should know it, and then it's the name of a, some saint or something. And, and anyway, there we are. Um, we're in uh, Luke 6. We're back in, in, in Luke 6. Um, let's pray. Uh, Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the joy and the privilege of being together as your people. We thank you for the opportunity to sing and pray and, uh, and, and then draw near to you in your word. And we ask uh, this morning that you would open us uh, our hearts by your Holy Spirit. Come and, and speak into our lives through these words of Jesus. Uh, for we ask it in his precious name. Amen. Uh, well, what does it mean to, um, if we pop that first screen up, what does it mean to be counter-cultural? Uh, I guess it was a coin, probably, it's, I think a, a term coined in the 60s. What does it mean? Well, what does it first mean? What does it mean to be 
cultured, or what, is it, what does culture mean? I mean, there's a thousand definitions, of course, of culture. What is culture? Culture is a kind of, uh, well, I, I, the definition I came up with is an umbrella term which encompasses the collective social behaviour, institutions, and norms found in human societies. It's the uh, shared ways of thinking, shared ways of speaking and behaviour, the things of what we value, what we think are normal. Uh, I remember when I went to uh, Brazil for the first time as a 20-year-old, uh, and uh, we went with a little group to, uh, to work in an orphanage, and it was my turn to do the washing up. And what did I do? Well, I did what I always did. I've always seen my parents do what I did at home. I, I filled a, a, a little bowl with hot, soapy water and, and got the sort of bubbles all got up. And, and I wondered why all these children were looking and laughing and pointing and, and thinking, what earth is he doing? Because you know, I thought that was how you washed up. I then discovered that not everyone in the world washes up like that. In fact, more people in the world don't wash up like that. It's quite a Western thing, because most don't have hot running water anyway, and, uh, and, and they don't use bubbles, and they, and, or they use them and, and they have... Run anyway, I've discovered all sorts of things. I just, at that point, I realised that's culture. I've grown up. I, I, this is how I wash up. This is how everyone washes up. No, it's not. And, of course, there's a thousand other things, a million other things that we do when we cross cultures and we realise uh, that what we think is normal is not normal everywhere. Uh, it's a bit like, you know, culture is about breathing air. You just don't know it's there. You're just doing it. It's like fish swimming in water. They don't think about the water. They just swim in it. And so uh, to be countercultural uh, means to, to go against the flow, uh, to, to challenge the prevailing norms, to have beliefs and values and practices that are different to those around us. Uh, it's to turn things upside down, or uh, you might argue, some would argue, to turn things the right way up. And that is what Jesus came to do, to turn things the right way up, to confront a world, a culture that had pushed God from the centre, uh, to turn that world upside down, to create a counter-culture. And we're back in Luke's Gospel. We've been doing those values for the last five weeks as we started a new year, the values of the church. I won't test you on those either. Uh, but um, when we left Jesus in chapter 5, uh, he'd been doing the sort of things that only God can do. Uh, he'd been healing the sick. He'd been forgiving sins. He'd been calling people to follow him. He'd been claiming to be the Lord of the Sabbath. He was making a very clear statement that he is God. And there's mixed reaction. Many are coming to him, finding life, finding hope, finding joy. Uh, but the establishment, the religious authorities, they are outraged. We see that. Uh, just look at verse, um, uh, chapter 5, verse 11. Uh, and he, he, he um, sorry, chapter 6, verse 11. Uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious. And they began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. So, so it's looking ominous already for Jesus. The cross is already in view. The religious establishment are wondering what they're going to do about him. And he's just getting going. This is early in his ministry. And so this is the moment, I think, for Jesus to make clear that, that he's not just a remarkable individual doing remarkable things in first century Palestine, but that he is the one who has come to establish a whole new community of people. He has come to establish a, a family that is going to grow and spread out and extend across the world and across the generations. He is establishing a new community, uh, and it's called the church. And it began with the 12, 
but we're part of that same community. Uh, here, now, Surbiton, 21st century, we are part of this community that Jesus was establishing and beginning with those 12. And this new church, this new community is called to a radical way of life. It's called to join a, a counterculture that is different to the world, that has different values, that has different time frame, that has a different destiny. And so Jesus introduces uh, this new community and the core team of the 12 disciples. Do you want to shout out their names? No, we won't do that again. Uh, what is really clear about this new community is that it is important. Jesus has gone alone to a mountainside for a whole night to pray about who is going to be part of this new community. He's got a whole bunch of disciples. He's going to choose 12 of them. And he decides he's going to spend a night in prayer. I mean, this is just an aside, but it's an important one. Because uh, Google research tells me that adults, uh, an average adult makes 35,000 decisions every day. Of course, almost all of them we don't think about. You know, you're thinking about all sorts of things now. You're making decisions about what you're listening to and, and so on. Uh, 120 we actually give some thought to. What we'll eat, what we'll watch, what we'll wear. They're not life changes. They're just decisions that we're, we're making. And then, of course, there's the big decisions of life. There's the life choices, the spending habits, the relationships, the work, uh, all the big, the bigger, and, and, and the bigger the decisions, the more we need to pray about them. It seems to me that it, it, we need to seek God's wisdom for God's leading. That's what Jesus did. Eleven times in Luke's Gospel, uh, prayer is associated with decision-making and action and consequences. Uh, and so we need to be praying. We need to be a praying people if we're people who are making decisions, and we're all making decisions. So we need to be a praying people. Seeking God over life decisions was the way of Jesus. And of course, God doesn't always give writing on the wall. He doesn't always give a, a clear, a, that we like that sort of answer that we like. He may just say, I've given you wisdom, ask for wisdom, make that decision. But if we want to pray, we need to be, if we want to be godly, if we want to be going God's way, if we want to be making wise decisions, then we've got to be praying about them, church. Just want to, it's obvious, isn't it? But I just need to say that and say it again. We need to be praying. If we're not praying, we won't do anything well. So if you want to pray about something, about with somebody, there's a prayer team over here after the service, making a life decision, get some others around you, some Christians, a Christian friend, come see me, I'd love to pray with you. Uh, we need to be praying as we make decisions. That was an aside. Because uh, uh, Jesus retreats, he prays, he calls this big group of disciples, he chooses 12. What do we learn about this new community from who's chosen? Well, they're regular, ordinary kind of people in this new community. We, to be honest, we don't know much about them. We're just about getting the 12 in our heads, the names, but we don't know much about uh, most of them. We do know that they're not high flyers. They're from uh, Galilee, maybe except for Judas. Uh, they're provincial people. They're not highly educated uh, men. They're, they're different in their backgrounds, in experiences and perspectives. It's quite interesting. Luke names, do you see, James, son of Alphaeus, He's a tax collector. And he names him next to Simon the Zealot. Okay, the Zealot is a revolutionary. So he's got a, a Roman collaborator uh, named next to a, a, an anti-Roman uh, freedom fighter. I mean, imagine bringing those two together along with the others. What sort of conversations they might have had uh, uh, around, the, around the dinner table. Uh, Jesus is bringing ordinary different, far from perfect people 
there's even a traitor in their midst. And yet there's one thing that brings them together, and that's Jesus. This new community is based on the call of Jesus. The call to be disciples, that is what unites them. So here's a, 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 a diverse community based on the call of Jesus, and there are 12 of them. That's not a coincidence that there's 12, of course, because Jesus is establishing, establishing a, a new Israel, a, a new covenant community. 12 disciples to parallel the 12 tribes, and these 12 have a unique role. Luke says Jesus designated them as apostles. That does literally mean sent ones, and we know there's a wider group of apostles, but these apostles have a particular authority to establish the, 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 the Christian faith after Jesus has, has returned to heaven. That's why in the ancient creeds of the church, we describe our church as one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. That means we're one united church. We're uh, holy, that's set apart for God. We're Catholic, that means, just means universal but we're apostolic, which means we stand on the apostles' teaching. It means we can't make it up. We can't, we can't just go with the flow. We can't just uh, go with, with whatever we want to uh, as we understand the teaching of the church. It's, the apostolic teaching provides the foundation for our church. And as we stand in line with the apostles, we form part of this new community that Jesus is building mix of ordinary, different people united by Jesus, called to a radical allegiance with him. This is the church, the apostolic church. And I wasn't going to mention this, but I, I think I will at this point, because Toyin raised the, the matter of, in, in her prayers of what's happened this week in the General Synod. Some of you will be more aware than others uh, about, about what's going on in, in the Church of England. And... Um, you might have read my, the, the little reflection I gave before um, in Emmanuel News, but I guess most, many of you will miss that, um, about my prayer for the Church of England to be continuing to be one holy uh, univ- uh, Catholic and apostolic church based on the apostolic teaching of the Scriptures. And uh, for me, as I understand the apostolic teaching of the Scriptures, it is around, uh, the, as, the, as the bishops have um, and, and the Synod have affirmed this week the uh, holy matrimony, marriage is between a man and a woman uh, in a lifelong union. And, um, uh, and yet there's been prayers that have been begun to be, they're not yet till July, uh, affirmed to um, pray for blessing on, on same-sex relationships. And, and I think that's a, a mistake and a, a non-apostolic uh, change. Now, as a church, we, we are wrestling with this, and we're wrestling with this in, in desire for love and truth and um, continuing to be part of that holy Catholic and apostolic church, uh, along with the, the vast majority of, of, of Christians in, around the world. And, and as a church, we, are, we need to be thinking about that too, so we are doing that as a PCC. In March, we're having a morning together uh, as a PCC and for small group leaders to, to think, to pray, to discuss, to allow each other to, to speak around these issues. And in that little article I, I, I said, I did say, if, if there's something that you're particularly passionate about or interested about or want to talk about, please, I would very much like to, to talk with you about it because this is an important and significant issue for the church and for people. And 
Uh, and so just, I, it came up in the prayers, it's, it'll be in, the, in your uh, mind for, for some people if they've kept an eye on the news. And um, so let's please keep praying about it. And we want to be as united as we can be around uh, the, the truth of the gospel. We want to be this one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. And um, because that's what I think Jesus calls us to, to be this community of believers. Um, and he calls us, let's get back into, into uh, the passage for today, because he does call us to be a counter-cultural community. And uh, you know, that speaks into this issue as well, of course. So, so um, I'm, I'm fully aware of that. But here, he, I don't think he's, he's, he's now speaking into, um, uh, in very serious ways, isn't he? I mean, this is a challenging, challenging passage. Uh, for all of us. He's, as we see him there on the, on the mountain, well, he's on, down on a level place, might be up on a mountain, but on a level place up the mountain, or he might be just in a different place altogether from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. People have different views on that. But he, he lists this series of blessings and woes. He's a bit like Moses. Moses at the end of Deuteronomy, if you know the book of Deuteronomy, just before the people are going to the promised land, he lists a series of blessings and curses. And Jesus is a bit like Moses here. He's giving these simple instructions, and they're simple and they're yeah, revolutionary. Simple and yet they turn the world upside down. Simple yet they're incredibly challenging for them then and for us now. Because if you asked a normal person, uh, whatever a normal person is, uh, you know, what do you think it would be like to have a blessed life? You know, we sometimes use that word in, in, in normal culture, a blessed life. If, if you were to ask someone, well, they said, what's blessed? You know, imagine there's a God and, he, uh, and, and you'd, you know, what would it look like to live under his favour, to be on his side? You know, what would be a blessed life? I think most people, including myself, if you just asked me that, would probably say, well, you know, healthy, healthy mind, healthy body, uh, well off, or at least comfortable, you know, supportive family, satisfying job, so popular, lots of friends, people who can enjoy food and wine and, and, and laughter with. Yeah, that's a blessed life, isn't it? To, to, to enjoy all these things and, and maybe a bit of winter sunshine with a pool and a cool drink. I mean, I, I don't know. Uh, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who are weeping. Blessed are you who are hated and insulted and rejected. And he carries on with his list of woes. Woes are warnings. The opposite in the sense of being blessed. Woe to you who are rich. Woe to you who are well fed. Woe to you who laugh. Woe to you who are popular with everyone. And we want to say immediately, don't we? That, really, Jesus? Are you sure? Have you got your blessings and woes the wrong way round? Isn't there a bit of a mix-up here? And Jesus say, no, 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 you've heard me correctly. My values are not your values. My priorities are not your priorities. My church is called to be a counter-cultural community. And actually, this is difficult reading, isn't it? Especially if you live in Surbiton. If you've got food in the fridge, 
you like to laugh, if you want people to like you, I think that's most of us. Are all those things wrong? Should we take a vow of poverty? Should we all be sort of taking a vow of poverty, leaving everything behind? I mean, I think the answer is no to that, but at the same time, we don't want to lose the challenge of these words of Jesus. Because that's easy. We would just sort of make a kind of quick escape from these words of Jesus and then, and then you know, avoid the challenge. We need to hear these blessings and these warnings so we can look at what a countercultural community should be like. And it seems to me there is three things at least which mark this new community, three things that bring blessing that come out of these uh, blessings and woes. Uh, uh, the first is this, blessed are those who are dependent on God. Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God, says Jesus. What does it mean to be poor? I mean, it means to be empty-handed. It means to have nothing of your own. It means to be utterly dependent. Uh, Matthew clarifies it when he, in his Sermon on the Mount, uh, talks about blessed are those who are poor in spirit. That is, that they recognize their spiritual poverty before God. They recognize that poverty, their need to come to God to receive from him. But uh, Luke, I think, has got material poverty in mind here. Uh, but not in a blanket kind of way where everybody who is poor is therefore somehow uh, blessed and enters the kingdom of God. But, but, of course, when you're materially poor, you are ready to look outward, to look for help, to look to God. In contrast, of course, to those who have, who have material security and comfort. And it is very easy to slip into thinking that provides independence, that somehow provides independence from God. You know, I'm fine, thanks, I can manage. Wealth inevitably creates this sense of security uh, because you have more options if you're wealthy. You have more ways to cope with life, more choices, more ways of filling your life with, with stuff. No wonder Jesus said how hard it is for a rich man to get into heaven. And then surrounded by little children, just in, in that same instant, he, he, it's little children who have nothing in their hands. He, he says to the adults, unless you become like one of these, you are into the kingdom of heaven. So these, these blessings and words, they are about dependence. Where do we depend upon? What is our security in? What are we setting our hope in? The world says you just need, you need some more stuff. You need some more... Wealth. A survey in the UK, people asked, how much more money would you need to be uh, happy? And whatever people earned, it was just a little bit more. And a bit more proportionally. 30,000 would be 35, 50 would be 60, 100 was 120. You know, it, it sort of just went up and up. You just, you just need a bit more. But dependence on God is a mark of the counter-culture. Along with a hunger for God. Again, I think Luke has both physical and spiritual in mind when he speaks of hunger. Because Matthew adds, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Their longing is for God. And physical hunger is a reminder of that. If you've ever fasted, you'll know, or, you know that rumbling stomach is a reminder of, the, of, of your need and desire for God. That's, that's one of the ways fasting, I think, works. If you're well-fed, if your belly is full, well, 
you're much more likely to want to have a snooze. Because there is nothing romantic and about poverty and hunger. Nothing romantic. I, I saw that when we lived in Brazil. We should do everything we possibly can to eradicate poverty. But I also saw in Brazil that, that poverty and hunger with Jesus is better than comfortable wealth and being well-fed without him. Oh, I met some amazing people in Brazil who had so little and yet were blessed. They marked the counterculture because they were utterly dependent upon God and loved him with their heart and soul and mind and strength. It's no great surprise that the church is thriving most in the places where there's less comfort and security in wealth and possessions. Because those things anesthetize our need for God. They make us independent rather than entirely dependent upon him. And so if we're going to be blessed, if we're going to be a, the church that Jesus wants us to be, uh, we'll be utterly dependent upon him and hold loosely and lightly to the things of this world. We need to keep hearing that message. I need to keep hearing that message. And that's why Jesus is giving us that message. Blessed are those who are dependent on God. Blessed are those who live with an eternal perspective. Because this is big here, isn't it? It's brought out really clearly in the words of Jesus. Blessed are you, you will, he says. Woe to you, you will. There's a present and there's a future. And Jesus makes clear what the future he's talking about. Verse 23, he says, rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven. I mean, if this world is all there is, then as the writer of the Ecclesiastes says, you know, we should eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, if this world is everything there is, there would seem to be every reason to accumulate, to have a bigger house, to have a, a smarter car, to eat well, to, to make your bucket list, to avoid all the reasons for, for, for tears and for suffering that you can as far as possible, to cosset your life, to do anything, to get as many likes as you can on social media. Uh, you know, but Jesus is 100% clear that this is not all there is. That there is a day, there is a world to come, there is a God who has promised, and he is faithful. And so these blessings, they're, they're full of promises. Uh, it may be hard now, but just wait, says Jesus. You hunger now, but you will be satisfied. You weep now, but you will laugh. You're rejected now, but you will leap for joy. And we mustn't forget the warnings. The warnings are there too. Present choices will have future consequences. Rich now, but you've already received your comfort. Well-fed now, you'll go hungry. Laughter now, but you will mourn and weep. You know, in our world, in our culture that places everything in the here and the now, the counterculture is marked by a there and then attitude. It doesn't render one passive in the present. That's what people will sort of say, well, that just, you know, pie in the sky when you die, you just sort of put up with your own state now uh, because, no, it never does that. We don't wait and put up with injustice now. That's uh, often the accusation, but it does mean we can make sacrifices now. It does mean we can live in this world knowing that this is not it. We don't have to grab at everything now. We don't have to envy those who seem to have everything now uh, or desperately seek to avoid any kind of suffering because we know 
that we've got a God who's got it and a God who has a bigger and better and brighter purpose and future. One commentator writes that the premise of the sacrificial spiritual life is the promise of God's faithful justice. We base a sacrificial spiritual life on the promise of God that he will be just, that all will be well. Uh, we may not see it all come good in this life, but for the countercultural new community, uh, God is doing a new thing, and he promises that. Jesus promises, rejoice, you'll rejoice in that day, and you'll leap for joy. Uh, last blessing, uh, uh, Mark, of the, the covenant community, of the new, new, new people, this new community, is that Jesus says, blessed are those... Uh, verse 22, when people hate you, when they exclude you and insult you and reject your name as evil because of the Son of Man. Uh, Jesus knows that his followers will be marginalized. They'll be persecuted because of him. They'll be reviled and rejected because they're faithful to him and his words. But he says it's going to be worth it. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy because great is your reward in heaven for that is how their ancestors treated the prophets. To be persecuted for Jesus, to be marginalized for Jesus, it's to stand in a long tradition. The contrast is verse 26. Woe to you when everyone speaks well of you, for that is how their ancestors treated the false prophets. If you know your Old Testament, you might remember the false prophets were those who told the people what they wanted to hear. When the people of Israel had sinned, they needed to repent because judgment was coming from Babylon. The, the false prophet said, oh, peace, peace. It's all going to be okay. And of course, surprisingly enough, they were much more popular than Jeremiah and Isaiah, who said, no, no, judgment is coming. You need to repent and turn. You're putting Jesus first in your life, having an allegiance to him that trumps all others, telling people about Jesus and his teaching is unlikely to make you popular in this world. We've got to face that. We've got to face that. We have the best news. Those who God is calling will love to hear it. And the Talk Jesus researchers said that about 45% of people want to have a spiritual conversation. They want to hear about Jesus. And so uh, that's a good thing. We can be confident and positive and encouraged. We don't, we don't have to cower away fearing. Uh, but as people hear about Jesus and his words, some will take offense. Many will take offense, and it will be hard and difficult. It'll be easier to, to tone it down, to not mention Jesus. If we've got to speak about God, we can just speak about a generic God rather than Jesus. But Jesus says, blessed are you. Blessed are you if you're rejected because of the Son of Man. Blessing comes from allegiance to Jesus, whatever the cost. Friends, this is the new community. This is going to work out in all sorts of different ways. We've got to think and pray because this is challenging stuff. Uh, in a world marked by independence and self-achievement, God says we should be marked by humble dependence on God. That's blessing. In a world marked by wanting it all here and now, will be marked by an eternal perspective that knows there is a world to come. In a world that's marked by the rejection of Jesus, we will be marked by an all-out allegiance to Jesus, at whatever the cost. Uh, these are the marks of the counterculture.
some of them. We've got to work out what that looks like in wealthy Surbiton uh, for all of us. Uh, these are the ways, though, to true blessing. So let's pray that that would be the case. Tim is going to come up, and Julia, and uh, let's just have a pause, though, a moment to think, to respond, to pray. We think, will you join the counterculture? What will it look like for you in practice? How would that shape your decisions, your priorities? Just a moment or two of quiet before we come to a time of singing and worship. Lord, we know that you want to shape our hearts to be like yours, to be dependent upon you, to see that eternal perspective, our hearts to be set on Jesus supremely. And Lord, we want to know how that should work out in our lives. And so Lord, please be doing that work by your Spirit. Give us a sensitivity to your Spirit. Help us to know how we might honour you as your people, as your church. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.